Good morning. Today's passage comes from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If you're using the Black Chair Bibles, it's on page 891. Hear the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg of you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? he asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come before you this morning and our collective heart's desires is to know you more, to walk with you in a more profound way, to have a greater affection for Jesus, to look more like Jesus in our actual lives. And Father, what we're asking for here, what we're desiring is supernatural work. It's not something that comes from the eloquence of a man or by our own wills. Father, this comes by way of the Spirit and according to your word. And so we plead with you for supernatural activity this morning in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite bands in the mid-90s was a band called Radiohead. 
And Tom York, the lead singer uh, in one of his songs called Just, says this. This is the chorus. You do it to yourself, you do, and that's why it really hurts. You do it to yourself, just you, you and no one else. And what Tom is talking about, he's actually lamenting kind of the dismal downward spiral of his friends and loved ones who put themselves in these precarious situations, especially with regards to drugs and addictions. And he's also thinking of others, those entrenched in their careers or money or success, those trapped in a series of unfortunate, foolish decisions. And of course, we know people like that as well. Perhaps we've even been someone like that. There are people that seem far too gone, far too lost for rescue and help. We must also give thought to just how conniving and evil and destructive Satan is as he plots to seek out and harm and enslave people. There are three forces that seek to harm humanity. You may know this if you've been a Christian for a long long time. The first kind of force is the world. The second is our flesh, ourselves. And the last one is the devil. So our question this morning becomes, who is strong enough then? Who is reliable enough then? Who is kind enough to jar us out of what has enslaved us? We wonder if this counselor or that rehab or this book or those Christians or that medicine or these really nice Christians can help. Well, maybe so. But friends, humanity doesn't offer lasting solutions And our enemy is far too strong. We need to look outside ourselves, outside this world. Our gaze must lift beyond our own intelligence and solutions. In Mark chapter 3, interestingly enough, Jesus told this parable about a strong man. So this is from several weeks ago. And this is what he says. He says, quote, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Of course, we know the strong man in this story is Satan. We also know that Jesus is saying that he himself is the one who can bind Satan and plunder his house. Our story this morning, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, is basically a living parable of Mark chapter 3. Interestingly enough, in Mark chapters 2 to 3, Jesus' acousia, his authority, is referred to often. And so he heals and forgives sins and helps a man on the Sabbath because he has acousia, authority. But in chapters 4 and 5, the conversation shifts a little bit. Jesus is dunamis. His power is at work. Now, we know authority and power are related, but they are not the same. Authority is part of one's identity, Power is the exercise of that authority. So we've seen already Jesus is God's son and he's authoritative. That's already been established. But how is he going to use that authority? Will he use his power for good? Will he use his power to fight evil? Is Jesus stronger than the strong man? Is he strong enough to overcome the evil in our lives? That's what the story is about. Here's the main point in a sentence. You'll see it on your screen. 
Only Jesus is strong enough to restore us from the soul-destroying works of the evil one. Only Jesus, there's no other, there's none other. Only Jesus is strong enough to restore us from the soul-destroying works of the evil one. I want to show you three ways we see that Jesus is strong enough. Here's the first way, as we look at verses 1 through 10. Jesus is strong enough to command the demons. Remember, they crossed from the west bank of the Sea of Galilee, which was mostly kind of a Jewish population, and they're now entering Gentile territory on the east bank. This was new territory for Jesus and his disciples. There was likely no synagogue, no parade of scribes or Pharisees running after Jesus, no knowledge of the Scriptures or the Messiah. And so here you're going to find a number of Gentiles living under Roman rule and probably worshiping Greco-Roman gods. So what happens? Well, notice verse 2. As soon as Jesus places one foot on the shore, a man with an unclean spirit has been run around the graveside, comes to meet him. Now, this is not the first time we've seen a demon-possessed man. We saw this in chapter 1. We've seen that this is part of his ministry, casting out demons. As we kind of take into account the whole council of Scripture, especially the New Testament, we would want to say it's still possible for individuals to be demon-possessed today in the 21st century. And while it's not possible for Christians to be possessed, it is possible still for them to be oppressed by demonic forces. A couple passages of Scripture come to mind. 1 Peter chapter 5 describes Satan as running around like a lion ready to devour people, devour Christians. James chapter 4, this is my Bible reading just this past week. James commands Christians to resist the devil. Strong language, isn't it? Friends, spiritual warfare is real. The devil, his minions, demons are real, and they're powerful, and they're influential. Satan has a particular aim for your life if you're a Christian, and that is to destroy and dismantle your faith. His aim is to destroy your faith when trials come, divide the church when disagreements arise, put doubts in your marriage, push you into tempting situations, deceive you into thinking that you're more important than you really are, twist someone else's words to seem more hurtful than they intended, introduce some mistrust, uh, suspicion, even hatred into your church relationships. Friends, there is an actual person, there's an actual being who is attempting to do just these things and more. And he's got a demonic force that he controls to help. And sometimes the influence and presence of a demon is so intense with one particular person that they become possessed. Now, I want you to notice three things in our passage about this demon-possessed man. First of all, In verse 2, we notice he is totally unclean. He's making his home in an unclean place, the graveyard. He's possessed with unclean spirits. According to verses 3 and 4, notice, no one had the power to subdue him or tame him. This man was so wild, he was so violent and dangerous that the people of this town tried to shackle him up, but he had some kind of demonic supernatural power to break those chains and run wild in the town. And then finally, notice in verse 5, he was significantly tormented. 
He's screaming and he's cutting himself. Must have been an awfully sad, sad scene. And people were probably too afraid of him to pity him. Satan and his minions absolutely hate God, but they can't deface God. So what do they do? Well, they come after God's precious image bearers. They try to disfigure, they try to destroy the image of God wherever they can. Now, what might this look like in the 21st century? Does it look like this, what we see in this story? It sure can. I mean, we see it in some places in the world, but in our world, what do we see? We see horrible drug addictions, right? That's meth or cocaine or alcohol, enslavement to sexual sins. Really, it could be any sin or any addiction, anything that enslaves And as you see that life before you, maybe it's someone in your life, maybe it's a good friend, and you see this life becoming slowly entangled by sin or a substance, and over time you see a soul slowly disappearing, slowly degrading. And we look at them and we can see them mentally, emotionally, oftentimes even physically withering away. They are possessed by some evil, some sin, some addiction. We witness a soul that is in decay. We've all seen this sort of spiritual withering, even in our own minds and hearts, maybe not to a dramatic effect, but we've seen it. We understand it. Demon possession is probably the most dramatic, the most serious example of it, but it's all really the same. Not all people are demon-possessed, but all of us by nature are ruled by dark and sinister forces, according to Ephesians chapter 2, and that's before we encounter Christ. Friends, the evil one has one aim with it all, and that's to put you into bondage, put me into bondage. So friends, let me ask this question. When was the last time you thought with some biblical depth about our common enemy? Do you walk through your days? Do you walk through your weeks with a keen and prayerful awareness of Satan's power, of Satan's influence, of Satan's impact in this world, perhaps even in our church, certainly in the world, and perhaps even in your life? Or have you forgotten? Part of the reason we read stories to our children about dragons and monsters and scary things is not just to scare them. It's to help them to recognize the reality of evil and the reality of an evil one. And sure, it's within the safe confines of words on pages and our collective imaginations and, you know, conversations with thoughtful parents. But whether it's Sauron or Voldemort or the White Witch, whether it's Vecna or Darth Vader or, yes, the big bad wolf, These are all little fictional sketches of a far greater reality that is the person and work of Satan. It's not just the kids. All of us need to be sober-minded about our enemy, right? That he, that Satan is real, that his minions are real, that they have real power and real influence in this world, not just way out there in some isolated village, but in our more sophisticated cities and neighborhoods and towns. They can even hold sway in our minds, our hearts, our lives, if we are negligent. Satan is a mastermind. He is the father of lies. He is altogether cunning and sneaky in his spiritual assaults. But if our stories with our kids are actually good, if they're actually edifying, they will also help our kids recognize that evil can be defeated, right? Satan is strong. 
But Jesus is stronger. Satan is strong. You better believe it, friends. But Jesus is stronger. Look at verses 6 through 10. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? he asked. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Strange little moments. Remember, this is not just a man. This is a man that's controlled by not just one demon, but a lot of demons. Legion, as you might know, is a Roman military unit made up of about 6,000 men. Legion here expresses the fact that this man has been used as a military-like outpost of demonic activity in this area. We are meant to catch that Satan's opposition to God's kingdom is not haphazard, but ruthless and organized, and well-fortified, and established. But here's the crazy thing. I want you to notice what these demons are doing in relation to Jesus. Notice they're bowing to Jesus, acknowledging his sonship, even trying to sway Jesus. They feel threatened in Jesus' presence. According to Ephesians chapter 2, Satan might be the ruler of the power of this world. His forces may be fierce, His power may be menacing, but Jesus is stronger. Jesus can control and command demons. They obey him when he commands them. They have no choice in the matter. No one else has this kind of power. Nothing else has this kind of power. He talks to these demons like parents talk to a mischievous teenager trying to get their way, right? Ain't going to happen, son. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, it means we always have hope, right? If you're a Christian, if you're aligned to Christ, if you're aligned ourselves to Christ in some way by faith, we have the one who can bind up the strong man on our side. We have something bigger. We have someone more ferocious than the darkest and the most sinister forces of this world. We have someone more potent than the most intense bondages within our soul. So brothers and sisters, put your hope in the one who is strong enough to put into bondage the one who's trying to put you into bondage. He is stronger. He is the stronger man who plunders Satan's kingdom. And guess what? You are his plunder. And what this means is that with Jesus, and I want you to hear me right now because some of you have walked into this room and you're, you're really discouraged. You're really discouraged about yourself, perhaps. What this means is that with Jesus, you are never too lost. You are never too far gone. You're never too deep in the muck and mess of your life. Nothing is too difficult for Jesus to sort out in your life. And all we have to do, what God has called us to do, is align ourselves with Jesus, get under Jesus, trust him, repent of our sins. And then God will put us on the path, the path of restoration, which is what we see next. So the first thing we see is Jesus is strong enough to command demons. Next we see in verses 11 through 16, Jesus is strong enough to restore people. 
Friends, Jesus rescues us from the clutches of the enemy. He plunders Satan's kingdom. But I want you to notice here, he does so much more. We see it in this man. We see it in ourselves. Evil and sin can mean things can first get pretty ugly for us, right? It can look like rehab or losing your job or losing your ministry or losing your family. I mean, these are really difficult things. So what can Jesus, the stronger man, do? Well, in our story, we see a picture of not only rescue, we also see a picture of restoration. And it comes by way, and this is kind of weird, it comes by way of pigs, according to verses 11 through 13. We see these demons begging to go into the pigs, and notice Jesus gives the demons permission. And then 2,000 pigs, they fall off the cliff and they die. So what is going on here? What's up with these pigs? I I think I have a couple answers for you. We, we see again the terrible power of these demons and their ultimate goal to destroy whatever they inhabit. If they can't destroy an image bearer, they're going to destroy one of God's creations. And I think there's something else going on here. Here was a man who was held captive in pain and shame by these evil spirits. We don't know for how long. How could he be persuaded that they would never come back and control him? How could he be sure that the salvation of Jesus would never be lost? There was only one way, and Jesus chose that way. Jesus is teaching this man that the spiritual deliverance of one man is more, more important, more valuable, more worthwhile than 2,000 pigs and more. This man's story teaches us what is true of every person by nature. Friends, we are slaves to evil. We are not free. We are hell-bent on destruction. And no one can help us. No one was strong enough to help this man. But Jesus can do what no one else can do. He does not tame us. He transforms us. He does not bind us. He sets us free. He does not dehumanize us. He rehumanizes us by restoring the image of God in us. Christ alone Christ alone can break the power of sin and evil in your life and mine and set us free. Only Christ. So if you're a Christian, this isn't some theoretical story, uh, you know, out there for you to kind of look at and wonder, hey, is that going to be my story? This is your story. In a very, very real sense, making people normal again is the essence of Jesus's ministry. He came to save sinners. He also came to repair the ruin of people's lives. This man is a perfect illustration of what Jesus does in any life, which he enters to possess and transform. He makes people new. Now, what sort of newness do we see in this man's life? I want you to take a look at this newness through the eyes of the townspeople. Look at verses 14 through 16. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. I want you to notice, friends, instead of thrashing about untamable and wild, now this man is just sitting there. He's at peace. He doesn't need to be bound. Instead of ripped clothes and bloodied skin, notice he's dressed, he's functioning, he's normal. 
Instead of being completely out of his mind, he's back in his right mind. He's sane. He's thinking clearly. He's thinking reasonably. Isn't this what Jesus does in our lives? You know, we're possessed by some evil, some soul-destroying sin, and perhaps we long to be ourselves, long to be the kind of person God wants us to be. And sure, therapy might help. Medications might stabilize. Friends can encourage. But friends, only Jesus can radically transform When we come to Jesus, he will extract the you from your sin. He will separate the you from your sin. And sure, that takes a lifetime to see and enjoy. He will give you a right mind. He will help you become more sane, more clear-headed. Jesus is in the business of rehumanizing us. That's what he did with this man. Friends, we live in a world where some guy with a hammer breaks into a home and tries to kill someone. We live in a world where unwanted pregnancies are ended and unwanted infant girls are discarded in rivers. We live in a world where human trafficking is still a thing. We live in a world where meth addiction and drug overdose and alcoholism are not just news stories out there somewhere, but they are our friends' stories. We live in a world where evil still reigns in people's lives, and through it, our enemy is trying to dehumanize us. But Jesus is stronger. Jesus is strong enough to cleanse and restore and remake his people in his own image. Thank God we're not left to our own devices. Thank God that salvation involves not only rescue, not only forgiveness, but restoration. That Jesus moves us not just from enemies to kind of cordial acquaintances. He moves us from enemies to sons. So let me ask you, friends. Are you still in the position of saying to Jesus about your own sinful habits? Don't send these away, Jesus. Do you speak to Jesus like these demons do, trying to negotiate a compromise about the evil that still lurks inside you? Friends, why will you not yield to the pain of Christ's gracious work of deliverance? Why hold on to the sin and evil and the habits which are destroying you and dehumanizing you? Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's some loved one in your life, a friend. Can you share with them the gospel the good news that Jesus' power is for salvation and restoration. Now, don't misunderstand me. I I want you to hear me clear here. The rooting out of every evil, that's the goal, the work of, of salvation and restoration. This work isn't overnight. It may require hundreds of hours of focused spiritual work and prayer and grace driven effort and help from biblical counselors and the local church, maybe even doctors. This may not be easy. This may not be fast, but it's absolutely possible with Jesus. That's what I want you to hear this morning. It's absolutely possible with Jesus. It is exactly his aim to rehumanize you and to conform you to the image of himself. Jesus helps restore us by his spirit and with his word and through his body, which is the church, right? It's not like the work of restoration happens in some isolated corner over here. And we read our Bibles a lot. We see a counselor a lot. And somehow we got, we get all better. And then we come back to church recovered. That's now not how it works. 
We receive healing through the body of Christ, which is the church. So this work of restoration and salvation happens by way of the church. Jesus is strong enough to command the demons. He's strong enough to restore people. And then finally, we see in verses 17 through 20, he's strong enough to provoke a response. He's strong enough to provoke a response. Look with me at verse 17. Then they, here's the townspeople, they began to beg him, that's Jesus, to leave the region. Huh. Now think with me for a moment of the kinds of people who provoke the biggest responses in us or just in people over the years, whether it's for good or evil, or maybe it's just a neutral kind of thing. So Michael Jordan or Stalin or Confucius, Einstein or Saddam Hussein or Karl Marx, Pol Pot, Mozart, Hitler, Da Vinci. Now all of these kind of historical figures, they made a pretty big dent, at least for a time, and we still kind of hear their names, and we, we may have some connections to them in some way, right? But did any of them provoke the kind of response that Jesus provokes, as we see here in the Gospel of Mark, but as we see down through the centuries as well? Look again at this passage. Look at verse 17. The, the townspeople took in what had happened with this man. They had been long accustomed to hearing his shrieks as he's kind of running through the graveyard. For years, they probably warned their kids of him. They stayed clear of him. What kind of response do you think would have been appropriate when they saw this man gloriously normalized? Joy or relief, gladness. I mean, I'm sure some of his relatives were there. Well, how about nothing? How about stone-cold silence? There was no welcome mat on the faces of these townspeople on this day. There was no thank you to Jesus. In fact, they beg Jesus to leave the area. The details of the passage draw our attention to the crowd's recognition of the radical transformation of this man, which of course was produced by Jesus. Friends, they were afraid of what Jesus' continued presence would mean for them. Would it mean they too would have to change? Could it be that they would prefer to have an army of evil spirits in their town rather than the savior of the world? It sounds so, so just nuts to us, I know. But that's what we see here. And so they beg Jesus to leave them rather than change them. How unbelievably tragic. Well, I wonder this morning if that's you. You don't mind Jesus. He's done some good things in this world. He's said some good things. He's a good role model. But you don't want Jesus to get too close to you. You want to hold Jesus at a distance. Well, may I suggest to you that anything less than welcoming all of Jesus into all of your life will have disastrous and dehumanizing results. You may not be possessed by an evil demon, but you might be possessed and enslaved by some sin or evil. And so let me just encourage you, friends, don't hold Jesus at a distance. Don't go halfway with him. Go all the way in with Jesus, which means or which begins with faith and repentance, believing him, trusting him, repenting of your sins, and he will help. There's another response here. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him, 
earnestly that he might remain with him. You may have recognized the repetition of the word beg in this passage. Four times it's used. Everyone seems to be begging Jesus. Everyone relates to Jesus by viewing him as their authority, as the one who wields power, rightly so. The demons beg to not leave the region in verse 10. The townspeople beg Jesus to leave the region in verse 17. Only the man in his right mind begs Jesus of the right thing. Stay with me, Jesus. Isn't this the core of Christian discipleship, simply to be with Jesus? We saw this back in Mark 1 and 3, Jesus calling these men to follow him, to be with him, to walk the dusty road with him for three years. This is the right response to Jesus's power and authority, to welcome it, to welcome Jesus. And we know that being with Jesus means that we won't be the same. We're going to have to change. That might be uncomfortable and painful sometimes. But I know you believe this. If you're a Christian here this morning, we believe that Jesus' power is good for us. His rescue and restoration are good for us, right? So this man, he's gotten a taste of Jesus' power, but he wants more. And so he begs to stay with Jesus. But notice verse 19, Jesus doesn't allow it. He tells him to go to his hometown and proclaim the merciful work of God. And you may be wondering, why does Jesus tell this guy to go proclaim things when he's told people before not to do that? Remember this? He told the demons to be silent. He told other people that he, he uh, lavished his power on. Hey, don't go tell people about me. Well, before it was in Jewish regions. Notice here, this is a Gentile region. The Gentiles didn't misunderstand Jesus as a political or military messiah. The Jews did misunderstand. And so these Jews, you know, if if they would have found out that, hey, the Messiah is here, this great prophet's here, this miracle worker's here, they may take that narrative and kind of build it up, and all of a sudden, Jesus is dealing with all these rumors in Palestine. Well, he's not in Palestine, and so he tells this man, hey, go ahead, tell people about the work I've done for you. And so the man, he obeys, and he begins to tell people about Jesus Jesus wanted this restored man to be a witness to his power in this Gentile region. And let me just make a parenthetical comment here as someone who's ethnically Sri Lankan. This little moment touches me a little bit. And for all of us that are not Jews, we're all Gentiles, or most of us here are Gentiles. This should touch us as well. Because here we see Jesus caring not only for his own people, but for all peoples. Here we see a little glimpse of God's heart for the globe. This story reminds us also of of our evangelism. It reminds us that our evangelism is essentially doing what this man did, which was to declare the power of Jesus to save and restore. And, And just like this man's evangelism, our evangelism must be stark in its language. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, imagine the story this man must have shared in his hometown. He didn't share about Jesus like he would have shared about the weather, right? The gospel isn't normal news. Hey, did you hear about Brad Pitt's new girlfriend? Hey, you know, the Lions, they lost again. The gospel is good news because it is so gloriously dramatic and powerful and radical. We are not saved from our mistakes We are not saved from our weaknesses. We are not saved from our whoopsies. We are saved from the judgment that is due us because of our transgressions against a holy and righteous God. 
We are saved from being possessed by this sinful nature. And friends, we aren't restored just to a place of neutrality. We aren't restored to a place of status quo. We are born again. We are new creations. We are God's children. Think about the starkness of New Testament language, which describes our salvation, okay? Here's three or four pictures from darkness to life, from death to life, from slaves to sin to sons of God, from enemies of God to the family of God. Can you, get, can you not get more stark than those words? Perhaps some of our evangelism is anemic because we use diluted words instead of bold, stark terms. Maybe we avoid the language of judgment, wrath, and sin. Jesus will make you a better person, so come to Christ. Jesus will clean up your mess and get you into heaven. Here's your ticket. Come to Christ. Jesus can be your best friend. He can be your homeboy. Come to Christ. It's easy to reduce our evangelism so that it's more palatable. Who likes to talk about hell? Who likes to talk about sin and judgment? But that's like this man in our story telling folks in the Decapolis, you should really meet Jesus. He's a nice guy. What? There's so much more. Wouldn't it be unloving and unkind to withhold the awful place and dire situation and plight that people are in apart from Christ? Wouldn't it be unloving and unkind to withhold the magnitude of the restoration that Jesus offers those who have faith and repent? And so, friends, this morning, let me just encourage you and encourage myself to be like this man this disciple who first experienced Jesus' power and strength to save and restore him. And then he runs off joyfully proclaiming of that very power and strength to his town. My prayer this morning is that your soul would revel in God's powerful salvation for you today. He is strong enough to bind the strong man and plunder his house, and you are the wonderful plunder. Rejoice in that. May the language of your evangelism be marked by a sort of holy boldness, clarity, and starkness that captures the fierce power of Jesus to rescue and restore sinners. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence to ponder this passage.